know I'll have me a time with a poor man's lady Hitching on a twilight train Ain't nothing here that I care to take along Maybe a song Just sing when I want No need to say please to no man for a happy tone Oh, love my rosy child Craigling rose, you're a store-bought woman But you make me sing like a guitar humming So hang on to me, girl, I saw it keeps it running on Play it now, play it now play Hello and welcome now. to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 29th, 2023 My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. So, uh, Peter, coming up on February 19th and 26th at 4 p.m. at right. Theater 555 is Pete's... Theatrical Adventures. <laughs> now, tell us about Pete's Theatrical Adventures. <laughs> You're referring to the fact that uh, you don't uh, often hear me called Pete, right? That's yes, you- yes. I, so it's like, you know, when I say Pete Felicia, I'm thinking of a third baseman that I played with, uh, I played high school ball with, you know. <laughs> And he was very good. Um, he was. <laughs> now, uh, Linda calls me Pete, uh, my girlfriend Linda. Ah. Um, she does. Um, a lot of people do. Um, it, 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 I, I answer to anything. Just just don't call <laughs> me late for the theater. That's all I ask. Ah, that's a good twist on late for dinner. That's good. <laughs> so uh, the theatrical adventures, you're going to talk about uh, all your theatrical adventures. All You know, you're going to have an... Uh, you said that there was index cards. Do you have thirteen thousand index cards? Or? <laughs> no, about fifty, I think. And um, I just pull them at random, and whatever the card says, I tell the story that's on the card. It's based on something Spalding Gray did in 1983. He did exactly the same thing, and I always encouraged him to do it again, but he never did. And so um, I'm taking on the mantle of that with my own index cards of shows I've seen, shows I've been in, shows I've directed, whatever. So. Um, so that's what it is. And if you would like to see uh, Pete's Theatrical Adventures at Theater 555 at 555 West 42nd Street, email the box office at boxoffice at theater555.com. We have uh, the information in the show notes if uh, you are out and about and uh, don't have anything to write that down with. So check that out. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. And Michael, uh, of course, in your travails out and about in town. and seeing... <laughs> Travails or travels? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both, you know. Yeah, let's uh, face it. Yeah. Seeing Jonathan Groff ride past you on his bike and uh, running into Bobby and Kristen <laughs> Lopez in Times Square. What are they up to these days? Um, 
Well, I, I think I have seen Jonathan on his bike in the past, yeah. but but not <laughs> recently. Uh, and uh, yeah, I for, I somehow forgot to mention that when I went to Fifty Four Below uh, last week to see that wonderful uh, program of the cast album release party for Between the Lines, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, that Bobby and Kristen were there, and it was the first time I had seen either of them since like before um the book of mormon i mean well before wow. well before frozen uh and so i uh, it was really great to see them and and so i went up um kristen was talking to someone else when i went up to them so i wasn't actually able to speak with her but i went to speak with bobby and i said hi and he just he, he was so sweet he threw his arms around me and and uh i said oh, something nice. like yeah i said um i said well so much has happened since the last time <laughs> i <laughs> saw you and you know although it's old, old news now i guess i just want to say you know congratulations and i'm so happy for the both of you um and then he said uh i mean i guess maybe he he, he liked what i said <laughs> but he said um uh he said you look exactly the same time has stood still for you Oh, so I said, well, I'll take that. <laughs> That's you, true, Michael. That's true. You don't change. You really don't. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Thank you. For thank you. you. Yeah. Have you got a picture somewhere in the attic? <laughs> <laughs> no. Dorian, Michael? Just don't, just don't look too close. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, Dorian, not so gray? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it was great to uh, to see them. After such a long time, uh, similarly, as I, you know, I keep hoping I'm going to run into Lin Manuel Miranda somewhere because I haven't seen him since right before Hamilton happened. Oh, all right. Uh, so you know, that's it's these incredible things happen for people, and you know, if you're not exactly in the same circle, you don't see them for a while. Sure, and, sure, you know. absolutely. All right, so let's talk about our review section. Last week, Peter talked about A Beautiful Noise. And uh, speaking of Timeless People, the Neil Diamond uh, musical is still at the Broadhurst, and Michael got a chance to see it this past week. So, Michael, give us your take on this new musical. Yes, I brought my sister, Diane, with me. And we don't often go to the theater together, but I thought she would like this show. Uh, she had expressed interest in this. Uh, and then also I got her and her friends tickets to and Juliet. Uh, Cause I think oh, that nice. they'll like that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she loved it and I enjoyed it. I, uh, I, I was, th- I went into it thinking about Peter's comment <laughs> that uh, uh, I had said some negative things about the book of funny girl. And he said, well, if you think that's bad, wait till you see it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait till you see a beautiful noise and then get back to me. Um, I, I First of all, I want to clarify. I, I thought I did, but I want to clarify that when I disparage the Funny Girl book, I'm talking about the Harvey Firestein revision. Mm. I'm with Peter in thinking that that's really nothing wrong with the original book of Funny Girl. It's not the greatest you know, ever written. Nope. Yeah. But it's it's fine. Uh, you know, I think they I think it's solid work. And I don't know why. Not sure why it gets such a bad rap, but that's for another day. So we won't get into that. Um, this this book, um, I thought uh, I, I did not mind the central concept of this framing device that 
an older Neil Diamond is seeing a psychiatrist. Um, uh, his wife has suggested he see a psychiatrist. Uh, and I, I didn't mind that in itself. Um, uh, this is the book by Anthony McCartan, by the way, uh, you know, because it usually it helps to have that kind of a framing device when you do a biomusical. Sometimes they'll have uh, the person being interviewed by someone, which is what we have in MJ. Um, and then sometimes uh, it opens with them getting a Lifetime Achievement Award and then we flash back, you know, things like that. Um, so I didn't mind that so much. But as far as the actual lines uh in the book and also uh, most specifically the way the songs were shoved into the plot uh, i thought that was really pretty bad um i think the worst moment was you don't bring me flowers anymore uh you know the show is going along and neil has already divorced his first wife and now he's been with his second wife marcia for some time and it's been established that uh, there's a tr tremendous strain on the marriage because Neil is constantly touring. I mean, he's like never home. Uh, so that has been very much established that that's the specific reason why uh, there's this strain on the marriage because they, they really do love each other. So then he finally comes home uh, after being out touring for God knows how long. And he walks in and they start to sing, you don't bring me flowers, which, you know, the lyrics have nothing to do with that. Uh, he said, yeah, you hardly, he sings, you hardly talk to me anymore when I come through the door at the end of the day. Well, we've just been told that you're not there to come through the door at the end of the day. So, and then um, uh, she sings, uh, uh, after loving me late, now after loving me late at night, you just roll over and turn on the light. Well, he's not there to make love to her. So, uh, or not. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, I honestly believe, I honestly believe that they really feel if the first line of the song applies, then it doesn't matter after that. I, I, somebody... I had the same. I, and also yeah. that if the general mood of the song applies, yeah, right. that, That's that they will shove it in, even if the lyrics have nothing to do with it. Do with it yeah. So that annoyed me tremendously. Um, other negative things. Um, I think I think Mark Jacoby is a superb actor. And I remember telling him that after I saw him as Frederick in a little night music up in White Plains. Mm -hmm. It was, I, I mean, now I, I did not see Len Cariou, uh, except for the movie, but um, I, I told him it was the best acted performance of that role that I have ever seen. And of course, the singing was beautiful also because it's Mark Jacoby. Uh, but here he, um, there's this issue that his, his style of speech is nowhere near uh, that of the real Neil Diamond, Neil Diamond or uh, nowhere near uh, Will Swenson's approximation of the real Neil Diamond's voice uh, in the role of the, the younger Neil Diamond. So uh, it really seemed like this, uh, this separate old man <laughs> uh, was going to see this psychiatrist. And then there were all these flashbacks to the life of another person. Um, so I'm not sure why they didn't get somebody who looked a little more like uh, Will Swenson slash Neil Diamond and also sounded a little more like him. Uh, and, and even though, again, I appreciated Mark's acting very, very much, um, I just thought it was a case of miscasting. So I'm not sure what was up with that. Um, I uh, 
found the use of the Greek chorus extremely annoying in this show, especially in Act One. Uh, for the most part, the the ensemble functions as a Greek chorus, kind of sh- like showing up in the background and dancing on and singing, singing uh, back up uh, to the to the main singers, uh, because there were uh, until. Act two comes along, and then then uh, they, they function more often as actual like backup singers in diegetic songs for being performed in concerts and things like that. But for the first part of the story, there was no other way to use them, so that's what they do. And I didn't think that was really a very good idea. Um, I thought the direction was quite poor, uh, especially in terms of the pacing of the psychiatrist scenes. There were these huge pauses. At the very beginning of the show, and I thought, well, you've made your point. Uh, he, he, you know, he's. It's difficult for him to talk, but you don't, you know. Can we move it along a little bit? Uh, I, I just thought that was, that was a detriment to the show getting off the ground at the beginning. Um, on a positive note, um, it seemed to me, and I'm going to have to listen a little more closely. Uh, the other bio musicals tend to ape the uh, arrangements. Uh, the original arrangements of the famous songs very closely. Uh, for example, Jersey Boys and Beautiful, I believe. Uh, but this one less so. I, I thought there was more creativity in the arrangements and orchestrations of the songs. Um, but while still, of course, maintaining the basic style of the originals, because if they didn't do that, then people would be would be very upset. Um but that's what I that's what I thought. Oh, and finally, one more negative. Uh, I thought the sound amplification was horrendous. Uh, not so much because it was so loud. Uh, I mean, it was loud, but not excruciatingly so. But the EQ seemed very off to me. So the sound was very tinny, and that uh, that really negatively affected. Um, uh, the women's voices more than the men's actually because of where women's voices lie and particularly Robin Herder, who I thought was really excellent overall as Marsha Murphy, that second wife that I mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, she sounded really, really tinny when she was singing and uh, Will Swenson too, sometimes in his high notes. And I think it was really all because of the, Sound amplification. I, I, you know, it's it's a really it's become a plague on Broadway that some sometimes they just turn it up as loud as they can and they think that creates excitement. Uh, and I disagree. Uh, but also here, as I said, I think there was a problem with the EQ. Um, so anyway, I enjoyed the show overall, but those negative things um, impacted my enjoyment. Uh, on the other hand, in a way. I could almost say that none of this mattered because I happened to attend the show. My sister and I attended the show on the night of Neil Diamond's 82nd birthday. And so during the curtain call, Will Swenson pulled out his cell phone and called him. And we all sang happy birthday to him. And he, and then he spoke and Will kind of put the, cell phone up to his mic his head mic uh, so we could hear him and he said um uh, he said basically thank you so much uh i wish i could be there with all of you maybe someday <laughs> so it was quite extraordinary uh and then we all sang sweet caroline and it was <laughs> it was kind of an amazing evening so 
I haven't seen A Beautiful Noise yet, but I, I am seeing lots of uh, reviews, both from professional reviewers and, and social media from folks who have seen the show. Uh, do, do you feel as though that people are looking, uh, coming to the show, the general public is coming to the show as a Neil Diamond sort of tribute concert that they're looking forward to? Or uh, what do you I would say so. And I, I, I feel like I haven't given enough praise to Will Swenson. He really is quite phenomenal in this. Um, if you know his normal voice, uh, you might be put off a little bit by the, the, the uh, the imitation of uh, the very different, and I'm talking about the speaking voice now, especially mm -hmm. uh, of Neil Diamond. And it, it might sound very affected to you because it is affected because it's put on because he doesn't talk that way at all. Uh, but as the show goes on, I really, really began to appreciate more and more how, uh, how well, how good a job he did of, impersonating if that's the right word uh, neil diamond and especially because will's uh, uh, voice the natural uh, set of his natural voice is much much higher than neil diamond's will will mm -hmm. is much more of a tenor whereas neil diamond is uh, uh i guess a true baritone yeah or even a bass baritone <laughs> you know you think of something oh i love my rosy mm -hmm. child you know um so really <laughs> really um kudos to him uh it's it's quite something and i would say i would say it's worth seeing the show if only for that uh so my question continues that oh. if they are looking for a neil diamond sort of tribute when they do uh you don't bring me flowers are they looking for a barbara streisand type of uh, <laughs> replication i don't know uh, and it's that's um interesting too because barbara is mentioned in passing yes she is uh and that that was another weird line too because marcia the, the the second wife when neil finally comes home after touring for for months and months uh, she says that she uh, was actually about to go out uh, to visit the Redfords and Barbara. And uh, I think we know who the Redfords are. Uh, and then um, and then she says something like to, to Neil, she says, I know you don't like those people, but these are, you know, this is where we live and these are our neighbors and friends and I'm going to hang out with them. So I, I thought that was odd because I didn't know he disliked the redfords or streisand um <laughs> but so i i don't know what that line meant i remember growing up and you know my my family huge streisand fans and you don't bring me flowers was the streisand song not the deal Di neil diamond song ah. you know i do have a um a memory of uh neil diamond on the, as i remember it it was on the oscars and uh, he presented the award for, uh, I guess, I think it was for best song. And that was the year that Evergreen won. And he said something like, um, before he announced the winner, he said something like, uh, Barbara, you just did a great job. This is your picture. Uh, <laughs> and and um, I should mention for those who if there's anyone there who doesn't know that they went to high school together. Yeah, that is ah, in Brooklyn. I didn't know that. I didn't yes. Know that. Erasmus Hall, I believe. Mm -hmm, that's wow. right. Yeah. 
All right, so A Beautiful Noise, the Neil Diamond musical at the Broadhurst, now and forever. Yeah. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, we don't typically talk about stage readings, but you saw an especially good one called Bohemian Progeny that you wanted to mention. I do. Um, <clears throat> this is written by Julian Rosenblum, whose parents are Joanne Sidney Lesner and Joshua Rosenblum. Joanne uh, has appeared on Broadway in Cyrano, the Dutch version. And uh, certainly a stalwart member of the Blue Hills troupe, doing many leads in GNS shows. Uh, Joshua has uh, been a musical director for a long time uh, on Broadway, uh, did falsettos, and um, recently did the Into the Woods production concert, concert with benefits, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, here's their kid, uh, 26 years old, writing a phenomenal musical. It's an original, too. And boy, is it ever. Well, here's the story. Um, the uh, kid in the musical is the child of two lesbians. Uh, Joanne, in fact, played one of them. And um, they, uh, the the two lesbians, are a musical theater writing team. They've never gotten to Broadway, but they've had productions here and there. And they, they've managed to keep their heads above water and all that goes with that. But of course being a rebellious kid and what other kind is there, but a rebellious kid, you know, he certainly doesn't cotton to musical theater at all. He is into computers. He's into computer programming. He's going to make a real living. He's going to have a job. He's going to get that paycheck every Friday. He's going to have security. It's going to be great. So he gets with the company and no sooner is he there, he finds out that these people love to put on talent shows and they've written a musical. And he looks at it and he says, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to get it quite right. Bear with me. He says, no, no. Hack does not rhyme <laughs> with bat. You know, bat. And he keeps <laughs> going. There's a song called No False Rhymes. <laughs> so you know I'm going to love this, right? So anyway. <laughs> um, so, and, and they don't hear it. They don't hear it. No matter how much he tries to get into their heads, they do not hear it. And it reiterates the fact that, you know, the average person just doesn't get it. Look. Um, a guy who wrote a Tony-winning musical. I, you're going to many of you are going to know who I mean when I just tell the rhyme or uh, near rhyme. Um, I said, you know, that samovar does not rhyme with abattoir, and he actually wrote me and said, I don't see where they don't rhyme. So you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just something beyond the can of many people. So it's a lot of fun, and um, a lot of it is highly autobiographical because not only is uh, Julian the son of indeed uh, two people immersed in musical theater, but he's also a computer programmer. He knows what he speaks of, you know? So, and you know, really the show has so many witty, witty lyrics. Um, there's one that references falsettos. Um, and what did I play? Trinophore rhymed with pinafore, HMS pinafore. <laughs> I'm telling you, this guy's good, but you know, you have to expect that from people born on June 20th. I mean, you know, that's, uh -huh. you know, I mean, he was born um, the same <laughs> Uh, date as Jason Robert Brown and Olympia Dukakis and uh, Lillian Hellman and me. Anyway, and Giuseppe, <laughs> Giuseppe Bozzilli. Right, that's right. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, something's in the stars, something's in the water, something's in the something. But anyway, um, really, producers, pay attention to this one. Be the first on your block to really get to know Bohemian Progeny. Wow, he is... Uh... Uh, sounds really wonderful. His website's very interesting. He's got all of his uh, all of his programming and music stuff 
uh, there on the website, and it, it's so wonderful to... I, I find that very, very good technology. People always have a musical, uh, some sort oh, yeah, of musicianship sure. uh, connection yeah. there. Just like math know. and music, too. You know, same yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah, uh, math and music is a very good collaboration. So, you got to have oh, math and music. Right, look okay. at that. So, <laughs> Michael, you went to see the collaboration at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. It's been extended through February 11th. So tell us about what you thought about this play. Yeah, again, I, I got to this late, uh, as I did with A Beautiful Noise, just because of um, cancels due to COVID or lack of uh, ability to schedule them Uh but I, uh, I'm glad I saw it. I, I didn't <laughs> love it. Uh, this is a play by Anthony McCartan, uh, and uh, who wrote the screenplay for Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a uh, actually a movie I like very, very much. So I was looking forward to it for that reason. I, I just think um, I, I guess my feelings are similar to Peter, as I remember what he said. It, it, it gets really interesting at the end. Uh, towards the end, and I thought the beginning actually was was uh, very well done, um, especially as acted by Paul Bettany in the role of Andy Warhol. Uh, there's a sort of introductory scene before uh, the character of Jean Michel Basquiat comes on, uh, and uh, the question is whether or not Warhol is going to collaborate with him and he really resists it at first but then they wind up collaborating and it's a, a fraught collaboration let's put it that way um i uh i didn't prepare for this in the sense of uh looking up interviews with either of these people so i don't know how well uh if at all paul bettany and jeremy pope um impersonate or approximate these two historical figures and i'm not sure that that it really even matters a lot of people would say it doesn't matter uh my understanding is that andy warhol was actually in real life was a lot more soft-spoken than uh the portrayal that paul bettany is giving here but of course you couldn't do that on stage uh so that wouldn't have worked so he you know he's a good enough actor to know that um i thought they were both uh wonderful in the, in their acting uh jeremy pope did an um an odd thing his his uh jean i can keep stumbling on the name for some reason his jean michel basquiat uh is very quirky and i noticed he did something where he often would deliver lines while looking straight at the audience even though he was supposedly talking to warhol now part of that is because um during some of the play they're supposed to be painting and the 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 canvas is supposed to be the fourth wall basically uh of the you know where the audience looking at the stage um so but then there were other times when they weren't painting and he was also doing that same thing and i wasn't sure uh if he was just cheating out or if he was doing that because he was directed that way or or if he was doing it because he was trying to show that this uh fellow is really very quirky and then also uh we do learn uh, if we didn't know it already that uh, he has had drug issues in the past and uh the question is whether or not he's still um doing that and eventually we find out 
the answer to that question. Uh, so, uh, so that was a little odd, but um, it's still a very, it's a very compelling performance. Uh, both of the leads are also Krista Rodriguez um, is wonderful in a couple of scenes as Jean-Michel's girlfriend and uh, Eric Jensen in the role of Bruno Bischofberger, who is a, 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 an agent, I guess, who's trying to get the two of them together uh, because he thinks that that collaboration will be a, a watershed. So I, uh, I enjoyed the play. I, I thought it might've been better. Um, it's uh, it is in two acts. And I thought that some of it could have been cut uh, towards the beginning Uh and the intermission eliminated. I think that would have helped in this case. Uh, so uh, um, those are my thoughts on that. Nothing, nothing very insightful I have here to say, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the collaboration is uh, playing at the Friedman, and it uh, was extended a little bit through February 11th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you traveled down south uh, to the Atlanta area, and uh, you wanted to share some thoughts about the Atlanta theater scene. Yeah, um, I, I really had a quite wonderful time there. Um, I first went down to um, Atlanta proper to um, the Shakespeare Tavern. And it really is a mini version of the Globe in London. It, it has the same type of uh, stage uh, look about it. So, um, so that was great fun. But it is essentially, uh, you should pardon the expression, a dinner theater because you can buy food and you sit at tables and you can munch while you're watching the show. The show was The Merry Wives of Windsor. So, which, you know, when you think about it, I don't know if this is true, but it occurred to me this may be the first commercial comedy in the sense that as the legend goes, Queen Elizabeth said to Shakespeare, gee, I like that character Falstaff. Why don't you do a play when he, where he's in love? So um, actually, he turns out to be more in lust. But anyway, I, that's just a legend. Nobody really knows um, what happened. But but who knows? Maybe uh, this is not one of Shakespeare's best plays because his heart wasn't in it because he was uh, essentially given a command. But, but I have to say that this troupe, uh, directed by Kenneth Wigley, really had such fun with it. It was really great. Um, this troupe has so many wonderful character actors in it. Um, and I, I really thought that that was um, terrific because this must be the play that really <laughs> profits most from having great character actors. Um, if you know what's going on here, um, we have Mistress Ford and Mistress Page who are both being pursued by uh, Falstaff, even though both are very much married. And so there's a lot of uh, mistaken identity and what goes on there and uh, ways of uh, making sure that he doesn't get what he wants. But, um, but you know, I, it, it, I, I, I wish I could have stayed an extra week because next week they're doing Romeo and Juliet. And I'd like to see how a serious play plays at, um, at, at a tavern uh, with people eating and drinking. Um, the thing is that uh, when we saw the movie Shakespeare in Love, one of the great scenes when Romeo and Juliet is being unfolded there, what we actually see is even the men are crying, you know? So it's a very <laughs> moving show, as I don't have to tell you. And I wonder how it would play. But I'll tell you, um, I guess that's the um, short and the long of it to do a quotation from the play. But um, Norma Desmond said, we had faces then 
They really do have faces at Shakespeare's Tavern Playhouse. They really do, and they use them very, very well. So that was a good start. All right, fine. The next night, I went to Horizon Theater. They're not doing anything, but I went there to meet Lisa Adler and her husband, Jeff Adler, who have been married 40 years and have been running this theater for almost that same amount of time, which is really something. Alas, they were dark when I was there, but you had to be impressed by this couple that started in a single room in a former school uh, that wasn't being used anymore, and now they have a third of it. So they've really, really expanded their horizons at Horizon Theater, and they're very ambitious. I mean, I'm so sorry I'm not going to be there for their production of Natasha, Pierre, etc. I mean, boy, you know, that's an ambitious one, isn't it? Hmm. But, you know, it was so great to talk to them because they really made a point that um, – the diversity is so important in Atlanta. The, the theater companies there really make a point of making sure that they have diverse cast, diverse writers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they even had a Zoom call uh, about what to do to com, um, combat the uh, anti-diversity so to speak and um, they have a lot of uh, black artists there and a lot of women artists there and a lot of Korean and that brings us to the next step of where I went and I went to the Aurora Theater Company which is not in Atlanta it's um, somewhat north in I think it's north anyway <laughs> my GPS got me there um, in Lawrenceville a town not necessarily associated there with um a firebrand of a woman named Ann Carol Pence. And I went to see a play there. I'm going to tell you the name in a minute, but my point is that the theater very much resembled Manhattan Class Company Theater. Um, it almost was a duplicate of that. And it, very, very new, very nice, very clean, very accommodating, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So at the end, um, um, Ann Carroll uh, took me to um, next uh, to another room, and this is where we started out. And it was a modest 85-seat theater, and, you know, great. And then she took me to the cabaret. And then she took me to their 450-seat theater. And then she took, I'm telling you, it never ended. I mean, these people have achieved so much in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I mean, who'd expect it? But boy, are they attuned. Are they attuned to their Korean audience? Want proof? Okay. Not only are they doing Kim's Convenience. Now, this is a play that, you, that a title that may ring a bell with you because it was a Netflix series for five years. But this was the play that actually got that ball rolling and got it into a TV series. So this is the original play that started it. And I mean, like, wouldn't you want to see Prescription Murder now? That was the play that closed <laughs> out of town in 1960, but it became Columbo. It became a TV series. <laughs> you know, yes, there is a TV movie of Prescription Murder, but who knows how much um, the guys rewrote it uh, between the closing out of town. But, you know, so the same thing here. Uh, people who certainly know the next flick series might have really enjoyed seeing what was going on here and um, how indeed the original play functioned as opposed to the TV series. Um, I'm sure. I don't know the TV series at all. Um, so I can't um, be smart about that whatsoever. But here's the thing. Somebody um, who was Korean came to the show and said, gee, you know, boy, my father would love this, but, you know, he, do he doesn't speak English. So what did Ann Carroll do? She had it translated into Korean and has super titles over the show. Over wow. Stadium Arch. There you go. I mean, what does that tell you about an artistic director who does that? I mean, wow. really. So the play. Okay. So um, Kim has been running this convenience store for a long, long time. And there's a Walmart going up across the street. And Mr. Lee comes in. He's a black man, but um, Kim likes him because he says Lee is a Korean name too. 
you know? <laughs> so, uh, of course, the guy wants to buy the store because he has bigger plans now that Walmart's coming in. So you think, all right, this is going to be a big fish, little fish story. Okay, fine. I get it. I get it. No, no. There's much more going on here than that. Much more. And what we find out is the relationship he has with his family. Uh, he ha- he locks horns with his daughter because he does have prejudices. He still uh, has prejudice against the Japanese people for something that happened literally um, 118 years ago. But um, you know he's been brought up to distrust the Japanese. And we see that the nice thing is that his daughter doesn't share his prejudice. She's moved on. She doesn't hold this grudge. She doesn't see why it's worthwhile. But they also had a son. And the son left home early. Uh, he was 16. I mean, that's really early because he wasn't getting along with the father. And they had a really big altercation. And nobody knows where he is. Or does one of them know where he is? Yes, indeed. One does. One is in contact with him. And we will see how that plays out. How does it play out? Very tenderly. You know, I mean, the wonderful thing, the wonderful thing about seeing plays about families that are different in race, color, and creed is that we find out there are so many commonalities we have with people. So many And that's what happens in this play. You say to yourself, wow, yeah, my father was just like that. Wow, my mother would do that. Yes, indeed. I felt that way when I was that kid's age. All that. You know, it really is tremendously effective in that way. Now, this is actually a play by, um, I'm going to spell the name because I don't know how to pronounce the first name unless it simply ins, I-N-S. Choi, C-H-O-I. But it's a Canadian playwright. So it's very nice. Isn't it something? that an artistic director in Lawrenceville, Georgia, finds a Canadian playwright's play and decides that even though there's been a Netflix series and a lot of people might say, oh, I've seen that. No, she's going to put it on. And this is one of the reasons that she's been extraordinarily successful. I mean, really, I've never seen anything like this in in a small town. Never, never, never. So I'm telling you, if you get to Atlanta, sure, get to Shakespeare's Tavern. Sure, get to Horizon. But certainly, take the drive to um, Lawrenceville. You know, you won't be uh, disappointed for a tenth of a second. Wow. So, yeah, uh, we, we repeatedly talk about how not all the best theater in the world is happening on Broadway. It's happening off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and all around the world. And here's just a handful of examples here, Peter. Thank you so much for bringing us the report from the road. That is great. (laughs) (laughs) Michael ventured into something we don't often venture into, the (laughs) world of film, uh, where he got to see, uh, I guess it's, I I don't know if it is yet or it's going to be an Academy-nominated film. Oh, it uh, is. Well, I don't know uh, about film, but certainly Brendan Fraser got a nomination. Yeah, so The Whale, uh, starring Brendan Fraser. So, Michael, tell us about this. Well, he deserves that nomination, let me tell you. It's an incredible, amazing, wonderful performance. Uh, This is based on a 2012 play of the same title by Samuel D. Hunter, who wrote the play and the screenplay. Uh, I missed the show when it was off-Broadway with Shuler Hensley. Um, in the title role, uh, because that is the title role, The Whale. Um, well, the, wh- the Whale has a double meaning, because actually Moby Dick 
figures in the plot of of the play in the movie uh because the main character charlie is a morbidly obese uh english professor and he as the film opens we see him teaching online uh a class but he keeps his camera off because he doesn't want his students to see how morbidly obese he is and we're talking I mean, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be something like 450 pounds or something like that. Uh, and uh, so it's about him. He's obviously a, a, a recluse as far as not being able to go anywhere. And that's uh, that impacts on the film because it is very, very stage bound. You could almost imagine uh, that they took the film, the, the play script and, and put it on screen directly with with almost no changes there are a couple of moments where uh we see the area immediately outside charlie's home uh but other than that no scenes anywhere else and that might um turn off some people uh you know in a in a movie but uh, it's not really about that of course it's about the characters i i found the script very schematic and not very well written. Um, there was this issue that people kept turning up uh, at at very, very uh, at moments where you know it just seemed like very schematic that oh all of a sudden this person turns up because we need somebody to come in and and to goose the action and coincidences as to when people showed up. And also uh, there's a lot uh, in this uh, movie about uh, where people get upset with each other. Uh, Charlie's daughter is one of the main other characters in it. And she is a very, very bitter and difficult young woman. And so they have these um, extremely contentious conversations and, seems like eight times uh she would say i'm leaving and then go to leave and then he would say something and that she would stick around for a few more minutes uh or not leave at all uh maybe maybe that was less obvious on stage uh where that kind of thing tends to happen more often but in a movie it just seemed very very false to me um i noticed the tremendous overuse of the word amazing in this movie script and i'm not sure if that could have been intentional because i i it seemed like that word appeared 25 times uh and i don't know how the writer could have not realized it if it wasn't intentional but if it was intentional then i think it was a mistake because it just seemed weird to me um there are uh all these eye-rolling coincidences as far as uh, this fellow shows up at Charlie's doorstep and he's a proselytizer for a cult, although he doesn't consider it a cult, uh, called the New Life Church. Uh, And uh, then it turns out that later that he's actually no longer a member of that church, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, Well, anyway, so he, he is or was a member of this church. And then we find out uh, later that Charlie's lover, uh, male lover who died some years ago, had been a member of the church. And we also find out that his friend 
Liz, who's his also his caretaker and nurse, was also a member of the church. So, I, you know, I guess it's said in Idaho. Um, maybe there's uh, maybe there's a lot of cult activity in Idaho. I, I, I don't know, but it really strained credibility to me that all those people were involved in this cult at one point or another. So I had lots of problems with the script itself, but as a vehicle for Brendan Fraser, Fraser, um, it was spectacularly successful because his performance is beyond brilliant. And, and also you will be amazed at the prosthetics, uh, how they absolutely 100% make him look like he really is that heavy. Uh, I mean, you see him take his shirt off at one point or more than one point, wow. and you can't see, you couldn't, cannot see any line where these prosthetics might end, you know, where they attach to his body. And I don't know, maybe they uh, used CGI to, to help erase those, but that, that becomes extremely expensive. So I don't, I don't know how it was done, but you won't believe it. And you, and you won't believe that he isn't actually that heavy now, but I'm happy to report that he is not. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, so that it means at least that maybe if he wins the Oscar, he'll be able to go and accept it. <laughs> Uh, whereas if he were that heavy, that would not be a possibility. Uh, I'm I'm really sorry now that I missed the play with Schuler Hensley. I remember it got a lot of uh, positive feedback from some people, and I would have loved to see him in the role because I he's one of my favorite stage actors. Uh, but I did miss it, so I'm uh, glad that I caught up with the film anyway. So you've uh, been through Brendan Fraser, and you're here. <laughs> Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and I'm here. Peter, is there uh, somewhere an index card with the whale on it? No, no. I, I did see the play and I admired it greatly. And um, it was really something as um, the lights were going down before the play started and Shula Hensley walked on and uh, you could tell that, whoa, this wasn't the Shula Hensley we knew, even in the darkness as he was getting into that mm. chair. Wow. I mean, it, it, it was such an impressive, um, impressive start, even pre-start, if you will. So uh, I remember that very, very vividly. Yeah, he was very, very effective. And again, one of the things that came up, I know a lot in the play was the fact that he didn't want his ex-wife to see him in this condition. And she was very much one of the reasons why he um, felt the need to eat so much. I mean, that was his consolation. Um, you know, people who get dumped do um, things that aren't good for them. And this is a case where that is that in the movie, too. Yes. And also the fact that his uh, that his lover died. And mm -hmm. he, so he's been very mm -hmm. depressed since then. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. So if anybody out there uh, knows, uh, has seen a review between somebody who's seen both the uh, Shula Hensley production back in the day and uh, the whale, the, the movie today, I'd be interested to uh, send that up to us in our direction. I'd like to read a little bit about that. I wonder... I think possibly like an Adam Feldman or somebody who sees a ton of off-Broadway and, oh, Broadway, of course, as well, mm -hmm. and also uh, does a lot of popular culture film. Uh, I wonder if he's got one. So we'll have to The movie is directed by Darren Aronofsky, and the notes oh. uh, I read say that he tried to get the 
movie made for 10 years because as i said the play was mm -hmm. in 2012 uh, and he couldn't find the right person to play charlie until he came up with brendan fraser but that that prompts the question what specifically made him think of brendan fraser if since obviously he's not actually that heavy uh i mean why didn't the he think was of off the radar i'm yeah. sorry yeah and what yeah right a good point yes excellent there yeah. is a uh, podcast called uh, The Business from KCRW, mm -hmm. uh, and Kim Masters uh, hosts that, and she had interviews with uh, folks involved with The Well. Uh, it, it, if you're a fan of the play and of the, of the movie, I would say uh, dig up that KCRW. I'll see if I can find it and throw it into the show notes as well. I should mention Samantha Morton plays the wife in the uh, film. Okay. And I'm sure many of our listeners know her. So uh, that wraps it up for our reviews for today. Um, let's see what oh, else. Oh, you know, I James, yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot to mention I really did want to commemorate the passing of Everett Quinton. Oh, yeah. Oh, Everett Quinton. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, great. Yeah. Everett was a, a, a real major figure in uh, what I guess is called downtown theater yeah. for his mm -hmm. collaboration with Charles Ludlum, who was also his life partner. Mm -hmm. And um, they did incredible work with a ridiculous theatrical company down on Sheridan Square. And I got to interview Everett um, in, I think, 2018, when he did... Uh, a revival of one of their plays, Gallus. That's the play about Maria Callas, uh, an off off Broadway revival of that. And I got to interview him then. So I was really glad that I got to. That was the one time I got to speak with him at length. I had met him, uh, you know, spoke with him a few times before, but that was the the the, the one really extensive interview I had with him. So I'll send that along um, if you want to include it in the show notes. I think it might have been one of his last or maybe his last interview because of course um the the pandemic came along not long after that uh and now we're just getting out of that and now he has he has died so um it was a great loss he it took days uh, for an obit to appear in the new york times uh, or any other major news organization i uh, i don't think everett was that much into self promotion Mm. Uh, and PR and things like that. But uh, I was I was about to call the Times myself and ask them what was going on. But then uh, suddenly uh, it appeared. <laughs> uh, and it is... A, I had a nice... Ex no, no, just it's a well-written uh, obit. So I'm glad that, that that's the case. I had a nice experience with him too when uh, he did The Bells uh, based on a Charles Dixon story. And... Um, you know, I wasn't sure how he was going to relate to me, given the fact that I'm pretty much uptown, uh, and um, he certainly wasn't. But there was none of that. There was none of that um, feeling of either superiority or hostility or anything that goes with that. Um, we really related on such a wonderful level. He had me over his house. We had a wonderful time talking. So he really was a down-to-earth guy. Yeah. And um, if if you um, met him on the street, I don't think you'd know that he would be the uh, person who'd be uh, such an important uh, member of the Ridiculous Theater Company or um, the legendary 
um, mystery of Irma Vep that people <laughs> really still talk about. They seriously do still talk yes. about his performance and Charles Ludden performance to this day. And wow, what was that? 35 years ago, maybe? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Might be, yeah. might be. Yeah. I mean, good Lord, if the whale was already in 2012, which seems like three years ago <laughs> to me, uh, but you know how that works. <laughs> I found the uh, obit in the times from Neil Gensler and I'll put it in the show notes. So uh, folks can, quickly get over and find it great all right so that wraps it up for today before we get on to uh trivia and our musical moment i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to an to us an apple podcast there's many ways to get to us iHeartRadio plays a Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. Find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? If this musical could have lasted until October 20th, 1963... October 20th, 1964, or October 20th, 1965, etc., etc., etc. What famous song that had been sung sometime earlier by Marilyn Monroe could have also applied to this musical? Well, <clears throat> on May 19, 1962, Marilyn Monroe, appearing at a Democratic fundraiser, sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President to John F. Kennedy. On October 20th of that year, Irving Berlin's new musical, Mr. President, opened. Had it lasted until October 20th of the next year or subsequent October 20th, which it didn't, Marilyn's happy birthday, Mr. President, would have been just as apt. Juliet Green was the first to get it while adding, bless you for an easier question than last week. <laughs> she was followed by Paul Witte, Josh Israel, Mike Meany, Sean Logan, Brigadude, Tony Janicki, after four wildly wrong and terribly pathetic guesses, Isaac Blevins, Stephen Bell, and Greg Christensen. This week's question. In the 80s, somebody who would become a lyricist and a director of a big hit musical co-wrote a short-running off-Broadway review that had a one-word title. In the 70s, one of our multi-produced composer and lyricist teams wrote a short-running Broadway musical that also had a one-word title. Put those two titles together, and you'll have the name of an item that many people in the 1960s considered purchasing, and quite a few actually did purchase. Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, I thought we would compare uh, a track from A Beautiful Noise with uh, a recording by the real Neil Diamond. So our opener is Cracklin' Rosie, as performed by Will Swenson and company on the Broadway cast album of A Beautiful Noise. And our closer is the original Neil Diamond hit recording of that song. Uh, this was always one of my favorites of his songs. Uh, so uh, we offer it to you as our opener and our closer. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Set the world right. 